morning, everyone. I see several of my faculty colleagues out in the audience, and I thought I would tell the students here that sometimes we pretend that, we faculty members pretend that we just wish there weren't a spring break. We wish we could just go on teaching without any stoppage because learning is so important. But I just thought I would tell you that we're, we're ready for it as well. Um, and we don't fake it very well. We're, we're, we're pretty ready for it. So uh, I'm sure that that's in most of our minds right now. And I'm, I myself am longing for some good spring days outside. Uh, I want to talk today about the possibility of learning a lesson too well. I was born and raised in a Christian tradition that was quite focused on personal spiritual growth and relationship with God. Um, it was dominated by the pronouns I, me, and mine. That's how we talked, that's how we processed, that's what we did. The question that we asked each other, which was the fundamental question, was do you have a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ? And then, of course, the question we asked ourselves, once that was answered in the affirmative, was, are you having your personal daily devotions every day in order to grow as you ought to grow? We have a song. We had a song. Uh, my uncle was um, the convener of a gospel quartet, and they cut a few albums. And I remember hearing one of the songs on one of those albums, one of my favorite songs to listen to as a child. You may, some of you know this, On the Jericho Road. Some of you might remember that. The chorus goes, on the, I won't sing it. On the Jericho Road, there's room for just two. No more and no less, just Jesus and you. And it carried on that way. And that kind of sentiment was fairly common in many of the songs. Our concern was with my Jesus, my sin, my guilt, my shame, my needs, my fears, my hopes, uh, my prayers, my calling, my ministry, my sense of urgency and vision, and of course, my walk, my life, my death, my approach to heaven, my entry into the pearly gates, my encounter with the Lord Jesus, and my eternal fate in heaven. That's how we thought, usually. When I came to seminary, and probably in all truth, before I even got here, some adjustments were happening already. And I already began to sense that that kind of an outlook was somehow defective. And as I grew in my own uh, understanding of the community of, um, of, of Christ, I came to think of this I, me, my language as at best immature and reflecting an underdeveloped spiritual awareness, and at worst, downright selfish, if not flat out narcissistic. Well, part of my training at the seminary led me to encounter a number of passages of scripture that helped dissolve this I, me, my focus. And I have in mind three particular passages that were important to me. Uh, one is in Ephesians chapter 1, and I just want to briefly read to you that tremendous blessing that Paul prays. And I am going to emphasize the first plurals in this 
just to help you capture what captured me. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. He destined us in love to be his sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he freely bestowed upon us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. For he made known to us in all wisdom and insight the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. I could continue and the theme would be, you would spot the theme continuing there. I was also intrigued by Romans chapter 6, and I'll just read one verse here because it's, it's seminal for a whole raft of Paul's theology. Romans chapter 6, verse 6. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Now with this verse began dissolving, I guess what you might call the popular understanding of resurrection that we find so often uh, preached casually at, at funerals. And that is, you know, um, um, Aunt Leanne has passed away and thank God today she is in heaven and she is in a resurrected body all her own. Now she can jump and run as she wishes to or grandpa has passed away and thank God he's now in heaven and he's, been, he's in a resurrected body and so forth. In other words, according to the generally accepted popular view, resurrection is a personalized, individualized transit from where we are to God's realm. But in 1 Thessalonians 4, we get a very different picture. In 1 Thessalonians 4, we see that resurrection is actually, you might call it, a family affair. A family affair. I'm reading these very familiar verses, but sometimes the words don't sink in. 1 Thessalonians 4.13 But we would not have you ignorant, brethren, concerning those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Notice what he calls them. The dead in Christ have fallen asleep, and Jesus brings them with him. For this we declare to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and are left until the coming of the Lord shall not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the archangel's call, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and now notice this, and the dead in Christ, apparently as a collective body, the dead in Christ will rise first. There they are raised together. And then we who are alive, who are left, shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we always be with the Lord. How interesting this is. 
in a sense, we have a together family kind of resurrection event where instead of individuals being raised at the moments of their deaths, we together in a collective sense, the dead in Christ together, and then we who, who are left alive and remain are then transformed, Philippians 3, together at once. These passages and many, many others began to have a real effect upon me and began to, you might, you might say, bring a dawning light to me. And I began to make um, a major shift as best I could from what you might call the I, me, my language to the we, us, and our language. And what do most of us do when we think we've learned a lesson and we've seen an insight of some sort? The next chance we have to preach a sermon, it's going to come out. And so indeed, about 25 years ago, uh, fresh out of seminary, I was asked to speak at a homecoming at a church back, as they say, long ago and far away, thankfully. And I decided to let loose on this whole business of the crucifying the I, me, mine, getting rid of this stuff, and resurrecting the we, us, and ours for good. And um, I took for my, um, my straw man text a, um, a gospel song that was familiar to us. This is uh, an old Nazarene hymnal, and lots of other folks, the Nazarenes, use this, but in this particular hymnal, it's on page 127, a quintessential example of this, uh, a gospel song entitled, Oh, That Will Be Glory. Some of you may remember it. I'll read parts of it. You'll get the gist of it. You'll, you'll hear the first person singular dominating everything. When all my labors and trials are o'er, and I am safe on that beautiful shore, just to be near the, the, the dear Lord I adore will through the ages be glory for me. Oh, that will be glory for me, glory for me, glory for me, when by his grace I shall look on his face. That will be glory, be glory for me. Verse 2 continues, when by the gift of his infinite grace I am accorded in heaven a place, just to be there and to look on his face will through the ages be glory for me. Oh, that will be glory for me, glory for me, Glory for me, glory for me. When by his grace I shall look on his face, that will be glory, be glory for me. We move to the third and final stanza. Friends will be there. Now, first of all, here's the first mention of anybody else. But listen carefully to how these are described. Friends will be there I have known and loved long ago. This is just a little family reunion. Joy like a river around me will flow at this little family reunion. Yes, yet just a smile from my Savior I know will through the ages be glory for me. Oh, that will be glory for me, glory for me, glory for me. When by his grace I shall look on his face, that will be glory, be glory for me. It was a pretty effective straw man because it's a pretty sorry song. So what I did was I decided to take as my scripture text, Revelation chapter 5. This was the text of my sermon. In Revelation chapter 5, I read there just verses 8, 9, and 10 to bump out the vision and open up the skies to a much larger frame of reference. 
This mighty angel is the actor in verse 8. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and with golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy art thou to take the scroll and to open its seals, for thou wast slain, and by thy blood didst ransom people for God from every tribe and tongue and people and nation, and hast made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on earth forever. That was my text. Not so much glory for me, but glory for God in, in the midst of a global worldwide host, the company of which extended far beyond my grandpa and my grandma. Well, as I've been suggesting, I think it's possible to learn lessons too well. And I found myself, I think, pushing in some arcs even beyond what I think is a good and solid insight. But the arcs that my mind and heart began to go into I had a certain edginess to it. I began to suspect all of the I, me, my language. I still participated in it, and still, I should say, in what I perceive these rather weak moments on my part, slipped necessarily back into prayers of, you know, for my own needs and that kind of thing. But I viewed it as, at best, immature, uh, likely still narcissistic, but even then, I think in a sense, in a part of myself, I even criminalized the language of the I, me, and the mine. It isn't just misguided, it's criminally wrong. There's where I began to go. You know how it's easy in the midst of a correction to make overcorrections, to go further and to go beyond. What was happening, in, in effect, was that I was sacrificing the individual in order to preserve and to save the community. And in the name of community, in a sense, was obliterating the individual and, in, in a sense, outlawing the I, me, and the my language. Stranger things began to develop, in a way, because in this now purified air of truly enlightened spirituality, I began to notice certain things happening with prayer and with praise. First of all, with prayer. I began to notice these recommendations. You can find them there frequently around, whether they're bumper stickers or posters. You can find them uh, as you, uh, you know, uh, cruise through uh, Google and such. Things like this. Prayer is not asking. It is simply putting oneself in the hands of God. Prayer is, another quote, prayer is not asking. It is a longing of the soul for God. Now I've chosen not to give you the authors of those maxims because I thought that would be distracting. I'll just simply say they are famous people, you would recognize them immediately. But what they have done is that they have, re they're, they're at work redefining prayer away from any form of petition or asking. Why? Most likely because under the uh, influence of the sorts of ideas I've already been describing, they're trying to purge selfishness from us 
to purge narcissism from us by removing self-reference in our prayers and by outlawing petition. How interesting. Or if petition is allowed, petitions must be for things that are truly, really big, major, because we have now become responsible people. The world is our parish. There are floods and famines and there is persecution afoot. How dare you pray to God to ask him to help you find your keys? Isn't that horrible? And so we find ourselves in a bit of a dilemma about prayer because now stripped from prayer is petition because we have moved into the pure prayer of adoration, you might say. Also, praise becomes distorted in a way. Now, have you heard this? Now, I must admit that I thought that this was more common than it was, but maybe it's just me. But I have heard this expression let us not praise God for what he has done. Let us praise God for who he is. Don't know if you've heard that. Uh, I sure did, and it was sort of working on me subliminally in a variety of ways. But what's happening there as well is this. But the idea is that if we are thanking and praising God for things he's done for us, then basically we have revealed our selfishness right there. It's simply because he's acting in our behalf. And what we need to do is to grow up and mature and begin now praising God for, you might say, God's abstract qualities and abstract character and goodness, and that this is a mature move to make. I want to tell you again, I think I have been, I have been learning certain lessons too well. And I think I went beyond uh, the wisdom of the original lesson. Enter Psalm 116, the one read for us this morning by my request, and which essentially is the text uh, uh, that I want to take today. Psalm 116. The very first verse seems to blow out of the water much of what I have just proposed. The very first verse. I love the Lord because he heard my supplication. So we have right off the bat here, in one fell swoop, an unrepentant reference to the first person singular, I. I love the Lord. And you might be interested to know that in the 19 verses of this psalm, 16 of them have I, me, or mine sprinkled all through them. This psalm is intensively first-personal, intensively individual. It is the experience of a person on that person's own terms. I was brought low, and he inclined his ear to me. And then we notice even more so, I love the Lord because, not because of God's abstract qualities that can be contemplated from a distance, but because he acted in my behalf. He actually took action for me. I praise him because. Now, I was interested to come across in Wesley. I was reading through Wesley's works, and this would be in volume 12 of the old Jackson set, uh, letter 150, 
4, I think it is. He's writing to a, um, to a Dr. Robertson, and he's writing to a Dr. Robertson about some claims that had been made in that day about what was called the pure love of God. In other words, we love God not because of what he's done for us, but purely because of who he is. And here's Wesley writing. He says, the doctrine of pure love, that is the loving God chiefly, if not solely for his inherent perfections, Wesley says, I once firmly espoused, but I, but I was at length unwillingly convinced that I must give it up or give up the whole Bible. And for near 20 years, I have thought, as I do now, that it is at least unscriptural, if not anti-scriptural. He then goes on to say this, for the scripture gives not the least intimation that I can find of any higher or indeed any other love of God than that mentioned by St. John. We love him because he first loved us. What has God done for us? That's the basis of our action. That's how we know God, because of what he has done for us. And so in a nutshell, this psalm, I, am desperately, I was desperately needy. I asked God to rescue me. God rescued me from death, my ultimate enemy. And now I love God even more passionately because God has done this for me. There are two insights I think that are especially important beyond what I've mentioned in this psalm. There are many others. It's, it's almost countless what can be seen here. But I want to draw attention to these two in particular. And that is, God has inclined his ear to me. Think of that. The God of the universe being willing to listen to, as he says here, my prayer. My prayer. About 10 years ago, I was in Lexington on a bitterly cold night um, in a Chinese restaurant talking with a man, a, a really wonderful man, beautifully educated. He was a theist, but not a Christian, did not believe in Jesus, but did believe in God, actually. And we were talking together, and somehow during the course of the meal, I edged the conversation to this question of him, and I asked him, do you think, I'll call him Barry, I said, Barry, do you think that God knows you individually and particularly right now? Oh, he threw his head back. He had a very quick answer for that. He said, no, of course not. He said, almost a direct quote, if I can remember somewhat this, he said, I have a very high view of God. I view God as the ruler of the cosmos, the ruler of all time, the one above all things. I certainly don't think he's taking the time to rustle around in my life and my particulars. I have a very high view of God. Well, I thought he had checkmated me there. I didn't know what to do. I sipped on my soup a little bit more. And after a few moments of silence, I think it wasn't so much something I was going to tell him, but something that I discovered actually right then. And I said to him, I said, Barry, maybe you need a higher view of God. Maybe you need a God who is so overwhelmingly capable, so completely untaxed by the running of this complicated universe, 
that he's got an open channel and an infinite number of open channels to take complete and conscious attention to you 24-7, a higher view of God. I paused, then I thought I would do something risky. I asked him the same question again. I said, do you think God knows you right now? Then he paused, and to my surprise, a few moments later, he said, I think he must. I think he must. I'm wondering if you need a higher view of God. Calling upon God to help you with the car keys. No, I'm not saying that's the highest form of prayer. But what I'm saying is, I'm asking this seriously. Why not? Is he too busy? Really? Is he too taxed with other things? Really? I leave that for your consideration. If God is fully competent and able, what's the limits? Why do we limit God with what we're asking him to do? Here we have this psalmist overwhelmed. To me, to little old me, he answers my prayer. And then I am also noting in verses 7 and in 12, he refers to the bounty of God. Just amazing bounty. What shall I render the Lord for all his bounty to me? Verse 12. Back in verse 7. Uh, Return, O my soul, to your rest, for the Lord has dealt bountifully with thee. Bounty speaks of superabundance. It speaks of more than is necessary. It speaks of beyond what is needed at the moment. And the psalmist has discovered this about God. The moreness of God's provisions. Uh, Several years ago, my, this has to be 15 years ago now, my family and I were vacationing up in um, the coast of uh, Massachusetts. We had actually gone there at the invitation of some graduates of the seminary here, Tim and Tracy Farrell. Tracy's mother and father lived there right near the shore, and they absolutely insisted that we come and stay with them, which we did. And Tracy's mother was a wonderful Christian woman, a great hostess, and she announced that she had ordered tickets for us to go whale watching that next day. But she told us, she said, there's been a problem. She said, for about three weeks, there have been no whales spotted. And the whale watching tours have gone out and circle around and around and around, no whale seen. Uh, Ships come back, tourists are disappointed and cranky. The next morning we got up, and these tickets are not cheap. The next morning we got up and she gathered us in a little prayer circle. And she said, now I want to just pray for you donjels right here. And I thought to myself, as I gripped the hands of my kids who were probably about eight, eight or nine years old, I suddenly tightened up. And I thought, oh no, she's not going to do that. She's not going to pray for the whales. My children are young. They're impressionable. They could get a very bad theology of prayer right here. It will ruin them. So I was all tightened up. And she said, oh, Jesus. (coughs) She said, oh, Jesus. The Donjals have come a long way from Kentucky. I thought, the Donjals? Who are the Donjals? We're just a little tiny cog in a gigantic cosmos of God's, you know, who are the Donjals? She said, the Donjals have come a long way from Kentucky. 
And they are going to go out on those boats today. And I'm asking you to bring those whales right up in the bottom of the ocean <laughs> and to put on a show like they've never seen before. And I'm planning what I'll do in the aftermath of all this, how I will clean up the mess of very, very unfortunately directed prayer. Well, the... <clears throat> The Donjals went out on no ship on that ship. And I tell you what, a show took place. Whales came up from everywhere. Everywhere. It was so amazing, the ship stopped. Another ship pulled over and stopped. Whales were doing all the three or four different things whales do. They pop their heads up, they flap their tails. <laughs> they do the great big floppy thing here. They do what's called spy hopping. I mean, they were putting on the whole show to such an extent, to such an extent, that the captain of the ship took his video camera out, said, I haven't seen anything like this. Did God have to do that? Was that really necessary for the Donjals? No. We'd have motored right back to Kentucky just in fine shape. But you know what? This captures such an important theme throughout the scripture. He has dealt bountifully with me. Beyond necessity. There is surplus. There is more than I need. So, are we back to narcissism? Back to the I, me, mine? Two little things will help us here. Notice verse 5 of this psalm where this psalmist, so overwhelmed with God's provision for him, says in verse 5, he makes a general statement, gracious is the Lord and righteous. He has broken through observing just the blessings of God to seeing God's sustaining characteristics. God is this way, you see? And here's the connection. If God is this way, then God is this way not just for me, but God is this way for you and for everybody. The narcissist says, I am blessed because I'm exceptional. I'm different. I stand out. The godly psalmist says, I am blessed because I'm not exceptional. I fit within all who trust God. We all are experiencing this, which is why the very last line of the psalm says, come all of us. You all worship God with me. It becomes collective because the nature of God's bounty is so generous that we find ourselves flinging our arms wide open in embrace of all the other folk as well. And so what we have here is we have a testimony. A testimony is different from a sermon. A testimony is different from a treatise. A testimony is different from a, a discussion or a description or a declaration or an argument. A testimony is something that's direct. I have been there. I have seen this. I know God. God has dealt bountifully with me. One last comment to make here. Several years ago, uh, my family and I were in South Carolina on a small lake up in the mountains. I shouldn't say a small lake. It's a fairly deep lake and, and, and actually kind of long. Lake Jocassi. And we had hired 
a nature tour to take us on a pontoon boat around the edge of the lake, and it was a multi-hour tour. It was wonderful. Birds, fish, um, trees, flowers, all kinds of things that he was able to talk about uh, with us on that trip. We got to the very far end of the lake, uh, had a, a, a picnic meal on the beach, uh, re-embarked uh, on the, the boat, and began to make kind of a long journey back across the lake. And as we were coming across the lake, some of our family members, it was a larger extended family, were, were kind of huddled under some blankets and things. But a few of us were in the stern of the boat with the, with the guide. And um, over the drone of the motor, as we were just kind of making our beeline all the way back, fairly long trek across that lake, uh, he looked at, uh, at us and he said, I could tell that you folks were Christians. He said, I could tell not just by the fact that you prayed over your meal, but I could tell by how you talked to each other, you're Christians. And he said, I want to tell you that I'm a Christian as well. And he said, I always have tried to bear witness to Jesus on trips like this. I always get a word in for Jesus. He said, I'm not very good at it, but I give it a try. He said, in one night, a group of men, a group of three men had hired me to take them on an all-night fishing trip on this lake. And we had spent all night fishing, and it was a very good night. We were all exhausted. He said, around 5 o'clock in the morning, we began making our way back to the other end of the lake, just as we were at that point. But he said there was a beautiful, gigantic, uh, a yellow, orange moon that was setting right on the horizon. He said it was gorgeous, and we were, we, were, we were sailing right into the moon. And he said, I thought, finally, this is my chance. This is my chance. So he said to the men, as they were underway towards that moon, he said, you see that moon out there? They looked at it, and he, they nodded, and he said, I just want you to know that I know the person who made that moon. And I want you to know he loves you and he knows you. And he, then he said, that's all I said. He said, I, I thought this is so inadequate, this is terrible. And, they, and the, word, the men never said a word. He said, but one man looked at me with the strangest gaze. He had some kind of a twinkle in his eye, some kind of a radiance in his face. I couldn't make out what it was. It was the strangest look on this man's face. Inviting, not frightening, but strange. He said, we got to the dock. I helped them unload their equipment. And this one man turned around to me and he said, I'm going to be sending you something in the mail next week. Be looking for it. But what would this be? Next week came, an envelope arrived in the mail. He opened it up, pulled it out. Picture of an astronaut standing on the moon. He says, Dear Dave, yes, this is me. James Irwin. I was there. And he was too. You need to read James Irwin's, James Irwin's story. He met Jesus there on the moon. Anyway. Then the guy told me, he said, can you imagine how silly I felt? I was telling him about the moon. He'd been there. And that's the difference between a report and a testimony. The community to be alive needs to hear testimonies of individuals who have met God.
I want to pray with you. Father, we bless your name. And we do declare that we do love you because you've done great things for us. I pray that however you would like to move in any one of our hearts, you would, feel the, you would find the freedom and you would find the permission to do so. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.